0: Well, good morning, guys. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study of uh, First Peter today, and today uh, we've picked a bit of a doozy. Uh, we're going to do an entire chapter in one sitting. Uh, so what that means is I hope you packed lunch because we're going to be here for a little while. Uh, for those of you that weren't wise enough to do that, uh, well, there are snacks in the pews for you. I'm kidding. They're not. We don't have that kind of stuff here. But with that in mind, uh, we are going to be looking at all of chapter 4 today. And as we look at this chapter, when we're, we're beginning this passage and looking at what God's doing here, as we're looking at 1 Peter, you know, the title of this series is Sojourners. And as we've been looking at this, Peter has been writing to the early church, and he's writing to a church that is experiencing persecution. He's writing to a church that is in a difficult climate, one that is hostile to the Christian faith. If it doesn't sound like the era we live in, I don't know what rock you've been living under the past 20 years, but that's a very similar climate to what we live in today. As he's writing this, the first few chapters as he's been writing, he's been writing about who we're to be. He's been talking through this, this theoretical practice of how does it mean to follow Christ in this world? What does it mean to live like him in a hostile age? And as we get into chapters 4 and 5, he begins to take a transition from the theoretical, if we can ever say scriptures are theoretical, of how do we live, how do we think, to the what do we actually do with these things? What does this actually mean for our day-to-day lives? It's one thing to say, I believe these things, I assent to these things, I trust these things. But what does it look like to actually apply these truths in our day-to-day lives? And so in chapter 4, Peter, as he writes through this entire chapter, is talking about the calling of a Christian. He's talking about the callings that we have, you and I as individual followers of God, and what does that look like to actually take the things that he's been writing and apply those to live and work in this world today. And so all of chapter 4 is really him talking about how we're to embrace this calling of Christ, how we're to live in this world and walk in a manner that is worthy to the calling to which God has called us. And so with that in mind, uh, I want to ask you guys, if you would, to stand with us as we read chapter 4. We're going to read all 19 verses, and then you guys will have a break, I promise. Uh, But if you would, would you stand with us as we read God's Word? Beginning with verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. For it is time of judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, we'll, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for you today. In the midst of this world filled with suffering and trials and difficulty, we're grateful that you are indeed a faithful creator, that you are at work in this world, that you've not abandoned us, you've not left us alone, that you're still at work in our lives and our world. So, Father, today we pray as we look at these verses, will you show us the truth that is here? Will you show us the, the power of the gospel to transform our hearts and minds? Will you show us the way that we're to live and how to embrace our calling in this world so that we may live life like you? Father, we are thankful for the things that you're doing, and we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as I said, we're going through all of chapter 4 today, so get ready. We're going to be running about a mile a minute as we try to wrap these things up. But our first point as we're looking at the first few verses is this, that we are to embrace your calling to suffer in the world. That you are to embrace your calling to suffer in the world. Look with me at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You see, as Peter's beginning this entire chapter, he's again moving from the, the theoretical, if we can say that, to the practical. This is what it means. This is how you're to live. And he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. He says that since Christ suffered in the flesh, we will thereby, implication, bear some form of suffering. That we should arm ourselves. That suffering, and this is perhaps intimidating to you as a Christian, is a part of our calling. That you and I are called to suffer for the glory of God on this earth. That just as Christ suffered and bore these trials and difficulties, we too are going to bear trials and difficulties in this life. So he tells us that we must arm ourselves in the same way of thinking because Christ has suffered. And so as he says this same way of thinking, he expects us to think clearly about this reality. He expects us to think clearly about the fact that we are called to suffer in this world. You see, typically when we think of following Jesus, what I think we think of here in the American church is typically that we expect Jesus to provide things like comfort, ease, acceptance, the American dream of a white picket fence and a front yard and all those great things. And that's not to say that those things are bad things. Yet the actual life of Christ, when we look at Jesus and look at the Gospels and look at Him walking this earth, It challenges every one of those preconceived notions. You see, if anyone would have this life of ease and comfort and acceptance, wouldn't it be Jesus? Wouldn't He be the one who would have the picture-perfect life? Yet as we look through the Gospels, He had a life that was marked as living as a stranger in this world. That His family rejected Him. That His disciples rejected Him. That those He came to save condemned Him and sent Him to the cross, an innocent man. That He came into this world expecting hardship, knowing that struggles and suffering was going to be His burden to bear. That's why as we look back in the Old Testament, we see passages that describe Him as the suffering servant. That He was the one to come to suffer and bear the weight of our sin. What Peter here is saying, and he's trying to lay out the entire trajectory of today for us, He's saying that if we've been united with Christ by faith, we'll have to identify with Him in suffering. That if we've been united with Christ in faith, we have to identify with Him in suffering. And what he makes clear is that not only are we going to have to identify with Him, but if we follow Jesus, we are guaranteeing that we will experience suffering. We are guaranteeing that we will experience hardship. In fact, perhaps one of the ways to ensure that you'll have an easier, simpler life is to simply not follow Jesus. Because following Jesus brings pain and difficulty and hardship. But a key difference in all of those is that as you experience these pain and difficulty and this hardship, you're united in the same suffering that Christ has suffered. Those burdens and hardships that you bear are the same sufferings and hardships that Christ has bore. As we look at the Scriptures, it tells us that He was tempted and tried just as we are, yet unlike us, He was perfect and holy and righteous. He bore every sin and shame upon the cross that you and I could ever fathom. He died a death that you and I deserved so that we may be united together with Him in His sufferings and share in His resurrection. And so today as we're looking at this reality, that we must recognize that we are to embrace this calling to suffer in this world. We're to embrace this calling that God has given us as Christians to bear hardship and trials. Why? Because He's doing a very peculiar thing in our lives by shaping us to become more like Christ through His work of suffering in our lives. Now, if you perhaps say, well, I don't know that it's the will of God to suffer. Well, look with me at verses 2 and 3. He says in verse 2, So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You see, what... Peter is telling us is that we're to live in the will of God and not in the past, not in the way that the world would call us to live. We've seen in things like 2 Corinthians five twenty-one, uh, where the, the old has passed away, the new has come. We, we are made new in God. And what Peter is telling us is that there is a dividing line between old and new. When you have become new, the old has passed away, the new has come. And what he's telling us here is that if you're to live in the will of God, you're to turn away from these things of your past, this sinful nature. That these things he describes, that this, this journey that these people are on, he is saying that you must reject the things the world would say is good, and you must turn to the things of God. That it echoes 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you don't remember that, let me read that for you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. He says, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you are to be holy. You see, if the will of God is found to be contrary to human passions, then we know that we can prepare our minds for suffering by giving ourselves wholly over to the pursuit of holiness. That if we commit ourselves to killing sin in our lives, we know that we can bear the weight of suffering because what is found inside of us is holiness. What is found inside of us is Christ Himself dwelling in us. You see, we're called to step away from the things of this world and pursue Christ. And so as Peter says, we're beginning to wrestle with this idea that we're called to suffer. He says, if you're called to suffer, you must commit your heart to holiness. That if you're called to suffer, you must commit your heart to holiness. Because one thing I'll assure you is that in the midst of your suffering and your difficulty, and we all have faced it and we all will face it, the reality is that the one thing that will be our anchor in the midst of this is Christ and His goodness. The one thing that will be anchor in the midst of these difficult times will be Christ promising that the inheritance that we have received from Him, that anchor, that glory that's going to come, that is how we get through this, knowing that this day is hard, but that sweet day is coming where we rest with Christ in heaven. That day when we grasp the fullness of eternal life and dwell with God. We know that day is coming and so we eagerly await and yearn for that day to come. Knowing that these hardships are but a momentary affliction in light of eternal glory. That this is how we prepare for suffering. By knowing that there is something greater to come. Now, Peter believes that this preparation for suffering is going to have some personal cost. We're going to bear some some weight, if you will, here in this. Look with me at verse 4. With respect to this, they, referring to the Gentiles, these non-believers, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. You see, this is going to lead to some real, specific, personal cost. One of the realities is that our actions, our preparation for suffering, our living and embracing this calling to suffer, is going to lead the world to be very surprised by who we are. If you've lived in this life, one of the realities that we see is that Christians are generally misunderstood. That we typically are more known for the things that we're against than what we stand for. And much of that is on us. Let's be very clear. We own a weight here. We have to own it. Yet we are misunderstood by the world. The world doesn't understand the things of Christ. How can they? They're lost. They're ignorant of the things of Christ. They look at us and they think that we're a bunch of freaks and weirdos. Yes, they're right, but we're found in the Lord and that leads to us to live a fundamentally different life than the rest of the world. This also means that we're going to be condemned, that we're going to bear a weight of criticism and ridicule from the world. Let me be very clear about this. The reality is that we are going to have people look down upon us and make fun of us and say negative things about us because we follow Christ. That if you're not getting condemned, I will put money on it. You probably don't know any lost people. That if people aren't saying that you live in a weird, unique, funny way, you probably don't know any people who are far from God. And what you need to do is step out of that Christian bubble and encounter people who live and think differently. And what you'll find is that some people are okay with this and others are ardent enemies and against anything to do with the things of Christ. Now, he also tells us that our actions are going to lead the world to malign us. That is, they're going to speak critically and ill of us. We look at this course of actions here. First we're condemned, then we're maligned. If we identify with Christ, we are going to be hated. Let's be very clear about that. If the world would hate a perfect, sinless Savior, they will hate His imperfect, sinful people. Plain and simple. That it's even been said by many theologians that when we accept Christ and the Holy Spirit comes dwells inside of us, that we now bear this target on our back, that this Holy Spirit is this image of the little Christ inside of us. And when the world, when Satan and his forces look upon us, they don't see Walter or you or anyone else. They see this image-bearer of Christ. And that drives Satan and his forces angry. That drives them wild. When the world looks upon us, they look upon us and see image bearers of Christ. And these people who are in rebellion, who are in lawlessness, who are against the things of Christ, who are actively rejecting God, will actively reject you and I. The reality of this is that if we identify with Christ, we are going to be hated and condemned. Now, to be fair, the truth of our persecution that we'll face is mostly verbal. That you and I don't bear the weight of having to hide who we worship, that we don't have to, like the video we watched, keep our identity secret so that people outside our immediate circle don't know that we're a Christian. That we're not going to be hunted down in the streets and have to flee as refugees because we follow Christ. That day may very well come here in America, but that day is not here today. And what we see today is that what we experience typically in persecution is verbal harassment. I don't like the things you like. I don't believe the things you believe. You're an idiot. Who are you to think these things? You believe in a fairy tale. And the reality is that though that is not as hard as what many of our brothers and sisters around the world face, we still have a certain weight to bear there. Because let's be honest... You've know, you heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What idiot said that? The most painful things in our lives are because words have been said to us. We've forgotten the broken bones and and the physical issues. But the words are the ones that we bear. Those are the real scars. And I won't make light of it and say that our suffering is in any way like that, which our brothers and sisters are dealing, but we do have a weight and a suffering and to some measure persecution we will bear. Yet in the midst of all of that, what Peter reminds us of in verses 5 and 6 is that vengeance will be the Lord's. We don't need to provide judgment upon this world because it stands condemned already. The world is condemned by its own sinful actions. Individual people who are in rebellion against God and His commands are condemned already. There is no position, no necessity for us to provide condemnation upon them. Certainly we call out sin where sin is found, and we condemn that and that sinful action. But we are not here to condemn the world because it has been condemned already. What we are to do is to trust God and to wait for Jesus to set all things right at His coming, His second coming. What we are to do is to rest in assurance that God is in control and that King Jesus still sits on the throne and He is sovereign to work things together for His good and His glory. And we are here as instruments in the hands of the Redeemer to proclaim and demonstrate the good news of the one who came to seek and save the lost. That our existence is to suffer well so that God may receive all the glory and honor. And our reward is that we're united with Him in the new heavens and the new earth free from sin and shame, free from difficulty and hardship, free from suffering. And so to you, Christian, I would call you to embrace your calling to suffer in this world. Because your calling to suffer in this world is for your good and God's glory. So embrace your call to suffer in this world. Now Peter continues. I said we're going through the whole chapter, and I know that was a mini-sermon in and of itself. But he continues with the next few verses that we're to embrace our calling in the church. That is, you as a Christian, you have a calling to be a part of a local body. Look with me at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see, here's the reality that in this time of suffering, we live in a very unique time. We live, quite honestly, in the end times. And I know some of you are going to take that as, a, as an eschatological statement, and you're going to start looking to Revelation, and you can throw that out. Most of what we think about Revelation and like the Left Behind series, none of that's true. Okay, Let's just call it like it is. We can argue later. But what we mean by the end times is that Christ has come. He has died on the cross. He has been resurrected. He's ascended into heaven. Everything in history after that is the end times, because we're at the end of the story. What's going to happen one day in the future is that Christ is going to come back with a sword in His mouth, a tattoo on His thigh, robes dipped in blood, riding a war horse, coming to find vengeance, to end sin and death, and to slay Satan. That the Jesus that returns is not the Jesus of peace and love. The one who has come and said, peace and love has been proclaimed. I am coming to end sin and death and bring my people home. That we are in the end times. The world is coming to an end even now. And I'm not standing here predicting like, oh, the Antichrist is going to appear or anything like that. We're not here to talk about that. What we are talking about, the reality is that we are at the end of history. One day, perhaps soon, Christ will return. And our history as we know it will end and the new heavens and the new earth will begin. That beautiful story of Revelation 21 and 22, we will live in that era. Now, what that means for us, though, is that Christ has already been crowned king. He sits on the throne even now. And God's plans are fixed. They have been established. Nothing is going to thwart them. Nothing is going to turn Christ away from his path. That one day God is going to look over at Jesus and say, it's time. And he's going to hop on that war horse, assemble the angels, and will come to end sin and death. That only the Father knows that time. We don't know when that day is coming. But yet, we know as we look at Scripture that perhaps the only thing that is keeping Jesus from returning is God's plan. That is, God's plan to bring more people into His kingdom through repentance and faith. You see, many theologians believe as we study the Scriptures that when Jesus is going to return is when every nation on the earth has been reached, that is, every people group has been reached with the gospel. And so if we indeed believe that we desire to see Jesus come back, that means we must be more passionate, more committed to proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel, not only where we live, work, and play, but around the world. That if you're going to say, come Lord Jesus, that first begins with a, do you know Lord Jesus? That the reality is, is that Jesus will return when his glory has been spread across the earth and people from every tribe and every nation know of Jesus Christ. And so God in His goodness is holding back the tide of Jesus and the angels coming to end sin and death so that every man, woman, and child will have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. You see, the goal of history is that Jesus will reign forever and return in judgment to establish His kingdom on earth forever. You see, it's this impending return that must have us asking, how are we to use the time we have left? Because God willing, I'm 31 years old, and I'll have another 50, 60, maybe 70 years on this earth. And so the question that I must ask is, God, the time that I have left, whether it is one day, one year, or 50 years, how can I use it for your glory and for your honor? How can I use it in such a way, serving the local church, that you get all the honor and glory? You see, it's this, this question, this idea of the end times, knowing that time is coming to an end, that must have us wrestling with these ideas of things like being self controlled and sober minded. You see, we're to live, we're not to live as we're trying to escape something. I know that you work with people like this, that uh, they, they live for the weekend, as the saying goes. That their goal is to put in their 40 hours and go home. Their goal is not to bring honor to anyone, but to get their paycheck and to go out the door. They're trying to get away from the humdrum of life and go enjoy themselves and live life. The reality is that we are not to live in that way. That God has uniquely positioned us so that we can make a difference where we live, work, and play that he has placed you where he has placed you because you have a purpose and a mission there. You and I are to live differently than the world. We're to act sensibly to the end of the world. If you can imagine this with me, if the you know, radio station, the airwaves, TV, would all come up and say, the world is going to end next week, what would happen? If everyone believed that, it would be chaos, Right? I mean, anything and everything would be happening. People would want to go buy this item and have this for one last time. They want to go experience this. They want to go drive that or do this. It would be complete chaos and anarchy. Yet we live in a time where we know the end is coming because we as Christians know Christ is returning. And in this, we're to live and act sensibly with the end of the world coming. We're to recognize the end is coming... And we're not going to spend the last days we have trying to buy the nice car and drive it around as long as we can. But rather, we're going to spend our lives as currency in the hand of God. That we're going to put a blank check on the table and say, God, wherever you will write this, whatever you will send me, I will go. Whatever you will call me to do, I will do. I have but one condition. That whatever you send me, whatever you ask me to do, you do it so that you receive all the glory and honor. You see, the point of all this, as he says here, is that we do these things for the glory of God. We do these things so that our prayers may not be hindered. He tells us here at the end of the verse that as we talked about from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 earlier, that sometimes when we get our priorities out of whack, God will then hinder our prayers so that we can get our eyes set back on Him and go, Oh, I've been off track. I need to get back to where God is calling me. God is telling us right here in this verse that we should also behave in such a way that we live this way so that our prayers are not hindered. That if our prayers are being hindered, it's because God is trying to get our attention and say, Hello, there's something wrong here and you need to correct yourself. Now, Peter continues on in the following verses, and again, he's talking through some ways we're to live and how we're to embrace our calling in the midst of the local church, right? He says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You see, one of the unique realities of our lives is that we're called to show love and hospitality to one another. That This is an express command. When you break down the Greek, this is a command. This is Peter saying, you are to do this. And so Peter is desiring for this love to spread through the churches that he's writing to. Remember, he's writing, 1 Peter, to a group of churches in what we would think is modern-day Turkey right now, just writing a broad letter to these churches of this is how you're to live, this is what you're to do. And even as he's writing it to the early church, he's still wanting the same thing to occur in our lives today. That he wants us as a local church, as people of God, who've covenanted together as a faith family, to love one another and to demonstrate hospitality. Why? Why would this be the case? Well, first and foremost, love is an indicator of who follows Christ. Love is an indicator of who follows Christ. This won't be on the screen, I'll read this for you, but John 13, 35 says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Point blank, Jesus makes it very clear, because that's straight from the words of Jesus' mouth, that makes it very clear that if indeed you are a follower of Christ, you will love one another. You will love those who are part of your faith family. You will love those who are fellow members of a local church. You will love those who are Christians. Yes, there is a love for the lost implied in there too. But first and foremost, you can't love those who are far from God if you can't love those who are in the family of God. And plain and simple, Jesus tells us, The world will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. Now, yes, that's an indicator of following Christ. Yes, it's something we're called to do. But it's also a tool, as Peter says here, to keep us from sin. You see, he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. And what I mean by this, it's this tool to keep us away from sin, is I just need to ask you a question. Are you nosy? Are you nosy? Now You probably think I've lost my mind and you're wondering where we're going with this. But here's the real question. Are you concerned with what's happening in the lives of your fellow believers? Are you asking how things are going? Are you asking what they're struggling with? Are you asking how you can pray for them? Are you sitting and listening intently to your li- the fellow believers around you? Because you see, the way that this is going to keep us from sin is if you and I are committed to love one another so deeply that I'm going to come up to you and I'm going to hear what God is doing in your life. And when I hear that you're straying into sin, I'm going to tell you, slow down, you need to stay away from that. This is a problem. When I hear good things that God is doing in your life, I'm going to speak life into those to encourage you, to support you, to see you grow and thrive in the Lord. And you'll do the same for me. You see, love covers a multitude of sins because if indeed love is found between the brothers, that what we will see is that we will keep each other from sin. Because we love one another dearly enough to say, you are strained and you need someone to put you on the right path. You are in sin and you need to repent. God is doing good things in your life and I want to encourage that and support that. The reality is that if indeed we love one another, we're going to be nosy people. And this does not mean that we do so for the sake of gossip. Because I promise you, if you're gossiping, I'll throw a hymnal at you. But what it does mean is that we're nosy and concerned about what's happening in the lives of our fellow believers. Because we love them and we want to see them grow and thrive in the Lord. That we are concerned about what's happening in their lives because we want to see them stand before Christ and let them hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Just as we desire that for ourselves, this love means we desire that for others. And so if indeed we're to love one another, this means we're nosy and we care about what's going on in each other's lives. Now, this love should also lead to this idea of hospitality that we should care for one another and for those around us. Now you might hear hospitality and you immediately think, well, this means I've got to host people in my home. And yes, in some respect, it does mean that. Like, yes, you, you have to have people in your home sometimes. That's just the nature of it. But it's beyond that. What this means is that we care about those who are around us. Where we are positioned within our local church, that means we go out to lunch with people. We care for one another. We hear of burdens. We not only pray, but support them in the midst of their difficulties. What this means is that where we live, work, and play, these places that God has positioned us, we care for those that are around us. You've heard us talk about this idea of neighboring, of just loving your neighbors as Christ has loved the church. What a beautiful picture that we see right here. That hospitality means that you're committed to your neighborhood, those around you, growing and thriving in the Lord. That maybe they don't know the Lord yet, but you're willing to love and serve them in such a way that they would come and see the glory of Christ. You see, this idea of hospitality means that we are just simply taking our love for one another and putting it into action. That we are taking this love for one another and we're proclaiming to one another that we love and care for you, I'm here, what can I do? I just think of uh, Frozen 2. My daughter loves Frozen. And in one of the climactic scenes, you have the, the gentleman, Hans, who comes up to Anna and says, in the moment of climax, the moment of difficulty, I'm here. What do you need? He's not here to be the hero. He's not here to be the savior. He's just saying, I'm here. What is it you need? And so as we think about this reality that we are to be that same way, we're to step foot into positions of difficulty and hardship and simply say, I'm here. What can I do? That that is the measure of love and hospitality for one another, that we would enter into messy, difficult situations and embrace them. Now what Peter is telling us here is that he's proclaiming that the end is at hand. He's telling us that this time, this end of history is coming. So rather than panic, he says we're to be sober-minded. We're to be known for earnest and sincere love. That we're to show hospitality to one another. And in verses 10 and 11, he tells us we're to serve one another. Look with me at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, what he's telling us right here is that we are called to serve one another with the gifts we have. He doesn't give us an exhaustive list of spiritual giftings, right? He just kind of gives us two broad categories, right? These two broad groupings. First, he gives us this idea of speaking. You see, the reality is that some of us are called to use gift of speaking to bring glory and honor to God. You know, we typically think of this as things like preaching and teaching, right? Not everyone is called to this task. Some of you are thinking, if you told me I need to stand in front of someone and preach for 40 minutes, I would die. Be like a fainting goat, hit the ground, we're not going to do this. I get that, it's okay. Believe it or not, I'm an introvert. None of you believe that, I know. The reality of this is that some of us have this gift of speaking. That some of us will be called to preach and to proclaim the good news of the gospel in an environment like this. Others will teach. There will be things like Sunday school, DNA groups, smaller things like that, right? Where you're going to be in a smaller environment. But not everyone has that gift, okay? He also tells us that there's this broad gift of serving, right? All of us are called to this because all of us in some way can serve. Maybe you're terrible with words, but you know what? You can still serve. The reality of this is that as we think about serving, what we typically fall into is we start thinking of things of physical service, right? And yes, let's be honest. Some of what we talk about as service requires us physically to be there doing things. That there's no way around that. That is some element of it. Yet, not all service to the church and in the church... Is a physical action, right? Not everything requires you to show up and stand up for three hours. Not everything requires you to physically do something. This is what I'm thinking of. Things like prayer, encouragement, and so many other things can take place at a distance, even if you're physically limited. That as we think about the realities of service, that every one of us is called to serve in some way. And the question for you and I is to wrestle with, Well, how can I serve? What can I give of what you've given me, God? Because I recognize the reality that some are more physically limited than others. That's just the nature of it, okay? The reality is that I'm not going to go try and lift a 300-pound box, but Pastor Brian, who is the weightlifter in the family, is going to try and do that. I've seen him try to lift heavy things. It's kind of funny, too. He turns red. You should watch it. It's great. But the reality of it is that Brian has some skill sets there that I don't. And so what that means is he's better positioned to use his skills. But that doesn't mean I don't serve. That means I serve in other ways. That means I use the skills that God has given me to bring honor to his name by doing other things. And so perhaps you're here saying that I am not as young as I once was. I don't have the abilities that I used to have. My question for you is not what have you lost, but what has God still let you keep? And what can you do with what God has let you have? Because here's the truth of it, that if indeed that we know we've only got 70, 80, 90 years to live on this earth, what are you going to do with the time and the skills God has given you to continue with? What are you going to do with the skills and giftings that you still have? How can you be of service to the body and to those who are far from God with what you have? You see, the natural outcome of our time as Christians is that in this world, we're to give everything we've got so that God may be glorified and honored. And yes, I recognize that some of us physically have more to give than others, but that doesn't mean that you're not to give. Now, as Peter is continuing in this, we've got a few more verses to look at. And he's talked about that we're to embrace our calling to suffer in the world. He's talked about how we're to embrace our calling to the local church. And now he's concluding with another talk about suffering. We're to embrace your calling to suffering and to judgment. Look with me at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also receive and be glad when His glory is revealed. You see, Peter begins this last section of this chapter by making a direct connection between suffering and eternal glory. You see, Jesus knew that the eternal glory of Christ could only be established by suffering on the cross. He knew that plain and clear that a garden of Gethsemane makes that clear where he tells us, Father, if there is any other way, let us do it. Knowing good and well that the only way for the weight of our sin and shame to be paid is for a perfect, holy, righteous man, fully man and fully God to go to the cross, to die the death that you and I deserved to bear the weight of our sin and shame so that we may have life eternal if we trust in him. He knew very clearly in the garden that that was the only path forward. And even as he cried out to God, let this cup pass from me. He was content with the answer being, this is yours, my child. Bear this weight for the good and glory of those who are to come after you. You see, Peter makes this direct connection here for us. He tells us that there's a connection between suffering and eternal glory. And he even is very clear, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. The reality of this is that we are going to face trials of some sort. That in this world that we are going to face difficulties and hardships. And this should not shock you. This shouldn't surprise you. We should know that this is going to occur. And we are to remember that trials are times of difficulty and affliction that we encounter. That's hardship. This might be very well a temporary or brief thing of trial. Yet what Peter wants us to know is that for everyone who follows Jesus, trials of some shape and size are inevitable. That we must go through difficulty if we're to arrive at our rightful inheritance. You see, trials and affliction, you're going to think I'm crazy, but listen, this is what Peter's saying. Trials and affliction are the earthly gift to anyone who desires to enter into eternity with Christ. That if you want to have eternity, you must go through sufferings. Not only that is, if you want to have eternity, you must go through sufferings. The sufferings you experience are a gift from God to shape you and push you into eternity. He continues in verses 14 and 15. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You see, continuing this theme, you know, we're to not think it strange if we suffer from the Lord. He's just continuing this thought we find in verse 12. And ultimately we see that it's not abnormal, it's not unusual for us to suffer from the Lord. Yet the reality is that we tend to struggle when suffering and difficulty happens in our lives. That we act as if God has abandoned us in those times of hardship and let's be very honest with one another, let's, let's be open, that's what we do. We wonder where God has gone, right? We act as if He's abandoned us. Yet, Peter points out verse 14, that if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think it's a unique truth that in our times of difficulty and hardship, we think that's when Christ has abandoned us, when God is nowhere to be found. Yet Peter would say, that's when God is closest to you. That when you are experiencing the most difficult, hardest parts of your life, that is when God is at His closest to you. And the reason you and I feel like He's abandoned us, like we've lost our way, like He's condemning us, is because we've lost sight of the reality that sufferings are promised. That if we identify with Christ, we identify with His sufferings. And what that means is that we're going to bear the weight of sin and shame in this world. You see, when we suffer, we are found closer to God than any other time. The truth of our time of testing is that God's glory is resting upon us. He's not abandoning us. He's protecting us. He's not gone anywhere. He is covering us. He's not abandoning us. He is guarding and guiding us. Really, Peter is just repeating the words of Jesus to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. You might say, I don't have that memorized. That's okay. I'll read that for you. Verse 11 reads, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus knew persecution was coming. He knew he was experiencing it. He knew you and I would experience it. And Peter is just quoting Jesus, in essence, when he writes these verses, saying that persecution will come and God will breast his glory upon you in difficult times. You see, all of this can be summarized by this truth. You and I ask for this privilege of following God, right? We pray to God, forgive us of our sins. Bring us into this family, Father. Let us be one with you in Christ, right? Like That's what we proclaim as Christians, paraphrasing some type of prayer, right? Like we did that. We ask for this privilege of following Jesus. And when we're in times of suffering, what God would tell us is he would say, this is it. This is the privilege of following Jesus. You get to suffer. This is the fruit of following me. Don't you want it? Don't you want this so that you may grow and thrive in me? These are not your sufferings. These are mine. If you share in them, then you share in my reward. You see, what Peter and what James and what so many other writers throughout the scriptures would tell us is that suffering is a gift from the God and we're to embrace that call to suffering and to judgment verse 16 makes it very clear for us that yet if anyone suffers as a christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify god in that name that we're not to be ashamed of the things of christ that for most of us as we suffer for the gospel we've said this it's going to come down to verbal persecution and we're not to be ashamed of our faith don't be afraid to identify with jesus that it would be a shame to meet him and not to be able to say that we've shared in his sufferings. That I think back to the Garden of Gethsemane that I've already referenced. and you know, It would be a shame for Jesus to have said, let this cup pass and then to walk away from it all and not die the death that we desperately needed to find salvation. In that same way, it would be a shame for us to walk away from the sufferings and difficulty of this life and to say, as all for not... It meant nothing. It did nothing. Yet the weight of that suffering was transforming us into people like Christ. Peter finishes up with verses 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? Peter makes this shocking conclusion for us here, because he shifted tone a little bit. Because suffering up to this point has been because of ungodly people persecuting us. Yet here he makes the point that some of our suffering is the result of our own ungodly behavior. That sometimes we suffer because we deserve it. And God is disciplining us. Yet you know, This isn't a surprise, right? We've already referenced 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 7, right? We suffer sometimes because our priorities are out of whack. And so we suffer so God can get us back on track. I just think of this as a a pruning of like a rose bush, right? I don't know if any of you are gardeners or anything like that. My mother likes flowers. And every year she trims the rose bush. And I think she trims it way too short, right? But I'm not the gardener, whatever. And I just look at it and wonder, is this thing ever going to flower again? Like It looks like you took a pair of clippers with no guard on it and just... That thing ain't going to grow back, but yet every year it grows back fuller and more beautiful. More buds, more beauty out of it every year. And as I look at it, I think that pruning cannot be good for it. Yet that is the very thing that lets it become more beautiful year after year. That pruning, that shaping, that cutting, that trimming, that makes it more beautiful each year. You see, in suffering, that's what God is doing. He's pruning us. He's shaping us. He's making us to be more like Him. Charles Spurgeon once remarked, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. But I am grateful for persecution and suffering and difficulty because it forces me to become like Christ. It pushes me in contact with the things of the Lord so that I may become like Him. And finally, in verse 19, Peter tells us, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. As our worship team comes back up and begins to lead us in a time of worship, this conclusion that Peter leaves us with, the reality we have to address is that we must entrust our soul to Christ in times of difficulty. This idea of trusting means that we're relying on someone else to take us through it. Jesus did this very thing at his death on the cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what Peter is telling us here, this idea of a faithful creator, is that God is the sovereign creator of this world. We can be confident that he will not allow us to suffer beyond his capacity and that we will endure by his strength. We have confidence in this because He's a faithful creator. He's faithful to His promises and His people. He's never abandoned us in our time of need. That for you and I, in the midst of suffering, if we're to embrace this calling that God has given us, it means that you and I must entrust ourselves to the Lord. And if you're here and you're a follower of God, that's an easy place to land because you know your soul has already been entrusted to Him. And what we're saying is this is just a continual call of trusting and walking before the Lord. But if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ and you're saying, I don't know what this means to suffer well. I don't know what this looks like to have confidence that God is going to see me through to the end. Then your call today is to entrust your soul to God by repenting of your sin, pursuing forgiveness, and walking with Christ in light of eternity. What I'm going to do for us is that as our band begins to lead us in a time of worship, I'm going to pray. And so I'll have a few moments of you quietly praying together with the Lord and seeing what it is He would say to you. And then I'll lead us and close us in a time of prayer and we'll have a time of worship. If you're here, of course, afterwards, I'll be at the back. I want to hear what God's doing in your life. I want to celebrate with you and hear about your struggles and your hardships and rejoice with you. If you're online, you can go to forward slash, com forward slash contact. Reach out to us. Comment on the link, send us a message. We want to hear what God's doing in your life too. So if I may, can we pray together? Bow your heads with me. Father, we are grateful that you are a faithful creator. That we can rest and that you are the God of the promise that you have made so many promises to us that you have never not fulfilled. That you are the Lord of the universe, that what you say will happen comes to pass. And Father, it is that sovereignty, that holiness that we lean upon, that we trust that you are at work in our lives. Father, for those of us here who are believers we rest in that sovereignty and know that the suffering we experience is meant to bring us closer to you, that it has intended us to make that time and eternity with you that much sweeter. Father, for those that are here that are not believers, who are lost and do not trust you, who are in rebellion against you, Father, convict them of their sin. Let them see that they are separated from a holy God by their sinfulness and unrighteousness. And may they repent of that sin and turn to you and receive the free gift of grace, forgiveness and mercy that you offer, holiness that you provide, and eternal life. Father, we are thankful for the things that you're doing. And we pray that in this time of worship, we bless your name. We make much of your name by singing clearly these truths, these gospel truths that we believe. Thank you for the things you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.